0: Then they struck close upon her ears. Lars Porsoner of Clusium, by the nine gods, he swore. And then more faintly, as if the speaker had passed her on his walk, that the great house of Tarquin should suffer wrong no more. Yes, she knew she must go back to all that, but at present she must weep. Screening her face, she sobbed more steadily than she had yet done, her shoulders rising and falling with great regularity. It was this figure that her husband saw. When having reached the polished sphinx, having entangled himself with a man selling picture postcards, he turned. The stanza instantly stopped. He came up to her, laid his hand on her shoulder and said, "'Dearest!' His voice was supplicating, but she shut her face away from him as much as to say, "'You can't possibly understand!' As he did not leave her, however, she had to wipe her eyes and to raise them to the level of the factory chimneys on the other bank. She saw also the arches of Waterloo Bridge and the carts moving across them like the line of animals in a shooting gallery. They were seen blankly, but to see anything was, of course, to end her weeping and begin to walk. "'I would rather walk,' she said, her husband having hailed a cab already occupied by two city men.' The fixity of her mood was broken by the action of walking. The shooting motor cars, more like spiders in the moon than terrestrial objects, the thundering drays, the jingling hansoms and little black broughams, made her think of the world she lived in. Somewhere up there above the pinnacles where the smoke rose in a pointed hill, her children were now asking for her and getting a soothing reply. As for the mass of streets, squares and public buildings which parted them, She only felt at this moment how little London had done to make her love it, although 30 of her 40 years had been spent in a street. She knew how to read the people who were passing her. There were the rich who were running to and from each other's houses at this hour. There were the bigoted workers driving in a straight line to their offices. There were the poor who were unhappy and rightly malignant. Already, though there was sunlight in the haze, tattered old men and women were nodding off to sleep upon the seats. When one gave up seeing the beauty that clothed things, this was the skeleton beneath. A fine rain now made her still more dismal. Vans with the odd names of those engaged in odd industries, Sprules, manufacturer of sawdust, Grab, to whom no piece of waste paper comes amiss, fell flat as a bad joke. Bold lovers, sheltered behind one cloak, seemed to her sordid, past their passion. The flower women, a contented company, whose talk is always worth hearing, were sodden hags. The red, yellow and blue flowers, whose heads were pressed together, would not blaze. Moreover, her husband, walking with a quick, rhythmic stride, jerking his free hand occasionally, was either a Viking or a stricken Nelson. The seagulls had changed his note. "'Ridley?' Shall we drive? Shall we drive, Ridley? Mrs Ambrose had to speak sharply. By this time he was far away. The cab, by trotting steadily along the same road, soon withdrew them from the West End and plunged them into London. It appeared that this was a great manufacturing place where the people were engaged in making things, as though the West End, with its electric lamps, its vast plate-glass windows all shining yellow, its carefully finished houses and tiny live figures trotting on the pavement or bowled along on wheels in the road, was the finished work. It appeared to her a very small bit of work for such an enormous factory to have made. For some reason it appeared to her as a small golden tassel on the edge of a vast black cloak... Observing that they passed no other handsome cab, but only vans and wagons, and that not one of the thousand men and women she saw was either a gentleman or a lady, Mrs Ambrose understood that, after all, it is the ordinary thing to be poor, and that London is the city of innumerable poor people. Startled by this discovery, and seeing herself pacing a circle all the days of her life round Piccadilly Circus, "'She was greatly relieved to pass a building "'put up by the London County Council for night schools. "'Lord, how gloomy it is!' her husband groaned. "'Poor creatures!' "'What with misery for her children, the poor and the rain, "'her mind was like a wound exposed to dry in the air. "'At this point the cab stopped, "'for it was in danger of being crushed like an eggshell.' The wide embankment, which had had room for cannonballs and squadrons, had now shrunk to a cobbled lane, steaming with smells of malt and oil and blocked by wagons. While her husband read the placards pasted on the brick announcing the hours at which certain ships would sail for Scotland, Mrs Ambrose did her best to find information. From a world exclusively occupied in feeding wagons with sacks, half obliterated too in a fine yellow fog, they got neither help nor attention... It seemed a miracle when an old man approached, guessed their condition, and proposed to row them out to their ship in the little boat, which he kept moored at the bottom of a flight of steps. With some hesitation, they trusted themselves to him, took their places, and were soon waving up and down upon the water, London having shrunk to two lines of buildings on either side of them, square buildings and oblong buildings placed in rows like a child's avenue of bricks. The river, which had a certain amount of troubled yellow light in it, ran with great force. Bulky barges floated down, swiftly escorted by tugs. Police boats shot past everything. The wind went with the current. The open rowing boat in which they sat bobbed and curtsied across the line of traffic. In midstream, the old man stayed his hands upon the oars, and as the water rushed past them, remarked that once he had taken many passengers across, where now he took scarcely any. He seemed to recall an age when his boat, moored among rushes, carried delicate feet across to lawns at Rotherhithe. "'I want bridges now,' he said, indicating the monstrous outline of the Tower Bridge. Mournfully, Helen regarded him, who was putting water between her and her children. Mournfully, she gazed at the ship they were approaching. Anchored in the middle of the stream, they could dimly read her name, Euphrosyne, Very dimly, in the falling dusk, they could see the lines of the rigging, the masts and the dark flag which the breeze blew out squarely behind. As the little boat sidled up to the steamer and the old man shipped his oars, he remarked once more, pointing above, that ships all the world over flew that flag the day they sailed. In the minds of both the passengers, the blue flag appeared a sinister token, and this the moment for presentiments... But nevertheless, they rose, gathered their things together, and climbed on deck. Down in the saloon of her father's ship, Miss Rachel Vinrace, aged 24, stood waiting her uncle and aunt nervously. To begin with, though nearly related, she scarcely remembered them. To go on with, they were elderly people. And finally, as her father's daughter, she must be in some sort prepared to entertain them. She looked forward to seeing them, as civilised people generally look forward to the first sight of civilised people, as though they were of the nature of an approaching physical discomfort, a tight shoe, or a draughty window. She was already unnaturally braced to receive them. As she occupied herself in laying forks severely straight by the side of knives, she heard a man's voice saying gloomily, "On a dark night one would fall down these stairs head foremost," to which a woman's voice added, "'and be killed.' "'As she spoke the last words, the woman stood in the doorway. "'Tall, large-eyed, draped in purple shawls, "'Mrs Ambrose was romantic and beautiful, "'not perhaps sympathetic, for her eyes looked straight "'and considered what they saw. "'Her face was much warmer than a Greek face. "'On the other hand, it was much bolder "'than the face of the usual pretty English woman. "'Oh, Rachel, how do you do?' she said, shaking hands. "'How are you, dear?' said Mr Ambrose, inclining his forehead to be kissed. "'His niece instinctively liked his thin, angular body "'and the big head with its sweeping features and the acute, innocent eyes. "'Tell Mr Pepper,' Rachel bade the servant. "'Husband and wife then sat down on one side of the table "'with their niece opposite to them. "'My father told me to begin,' she explained. "'He is very busy with the men. "'You know Mr Pepper?' A little man who was bent, as some trees are, by a gale on one side of them had slipped in. Nodding to Mr Ambrose, he shook hands with Helen. "'Drafts!' he said, erecting the collar of his coat. "'You are still rheumatic?' asked Helen. Her voice was low and seductive, though she spoke absently enough, the sight of town and river being still present to her mind. "'Once rheumatic, always rheumatic, I fear!' he replied. To some extent it depends on the weather, though not so much as people are apt to think. One does not die of it at any rate, said Helen. As a general rule, no, said Mr Pepper. Soup, Uncle Ridley, asked Rachel. Thank you, dear, he said, and as he held his plate out, sighed audibly.